with the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. Um, this is uh, our, our last public uh, event uh, before spring break begins here, and uh, then we'll have a busy schedule of uh, events after spring break. I hope you will all take a, uh, uh, one of our uh, calendars uh, at the back of the room on your way out, and we'll see you again. Uh, I'm very pleased today to uh, be introducing Professor Daniel Robinson, uh, distinguished professor emeritus at Georgetown University, where he taught for uh, 30 years. Uh, professor Robinson continues uh, today on the faculty uh, at Oxford University, where he's been lecturing since 1991. Uh, uh, we were very grateful in the Madison program to uh, have Professor Robinson here in the fall of 2001 to inaugurate the Charles E. Test uh, lecture series. Uh, each uh, year, as many of you know, uh, we invite a very distinguished uh, scholar to deliver a series of lectures, uh, and uh, Professor Robinson was our first test lecturer. Uh, our next, next test lecturer will be uh, lecturing in November uh, of 2006, uh, and uh, that will be Professor Leon Cass of the University of Chicago, uh, who uh, recently uh, stepped down as chair of the President's Council on Bioethics. Uh, professor Robinson uh, has served as a visiting professor of psychology at a number of institutions, including this one, but also Columbia and, and uh, Brigham Young University. He's the author uh, of 17 books uh, covering uh, an unusually broad range of disciplines, including brain sciences, philosophy and history of science, moral philosophy, philosophy of law, philosophy of mind, and intellectual history. I was first introduced to your work uh, a while ago, uh, a book you wrote titled Psychology and Law, I believe, uh, that was a very interesting uh, exploration of the uh, insanity defense. Uh, he. Uh, has written uh, perhaps the most definitive history of the legal conception of mental competence, um, his widely praised book, Wild Beasts and Idle Humors, The Insanity Defense from Antiquity to the Present, which Harvard published in 1996. Um, he is uh, perhaps best known of all for his uh, intellectual history of psychology, now in its third edition, most recently, he published, uh, he authored a book published by um, Princeton University's uh, series, the New Forum series, uh, titled Praise and Blame, Moral Realism and Its Applications. Uh, today, Professor Robinson will be speaking to us about uh, Terry Schiavo and the Shibboleth of Privacy. Please join me in welcoming Professor Daniel Robinson. Well, I want to thank the uh, James Madison program for having me come back. I've been told not to lecture into the light, but lecture into the mic. I'll try to do that. 
And uh, this is a very difficult set of issues that uh, Schiavo raised. I do want to get through uh, some of this quickly and densely, and so I'm going to read to you. But uh, during the question and answer period, I'll create at least the illusion of, of uh, speaking off the cuff and, and, and in an engaging way. If you don't mind, I'll dress Princeton style because it's very warm in this room. I always fear that I'm violating the dress code when I come here. But uh... The actual importance of Shivo arises not from the competing claims of spouse and family, but from issues larger and more fundamental at the level of law. Of these, I'll confine my remarks today to two of them, that of privacy, and related to this, the respect the law must pay to the autonomy of persons. Specifically excluded from any detailed comments by me will be a reflection on the medical facts and the medical assumptions at work in Shivo. In this connection, I should note at least briefly a statement made by Dr. Stephen Nelson reporting to the chief medical examiner for the 10th Judicial Circuit of Florida. On page 20 of Dr. Nelson's autopsy report, he notes with brevity and indeed aptness, and I quote, neuropathological examination alone of the decedent's brain, or any brain for that matter, cannot prove or disprove a diagnosis of persistent vegetative state or minimally conscious state. So one doesn't want to be fobbed off with uh, uh, the form of neuropathy and uh, th that sort of thing. The second point I'd make, and again without any discussion, is the controversy that surrounds both the diagnosis and prognosis regarding persistent vegetative states. In one recent and, uh, and illustrative study, investigators, for example, found that 17 of 40 PVS patients were misdiagnosed, and fully one-third of them displayed recovery during the period of the research itself. As the investigators noted, quote, the vegetative state needs considerable skill to diagnose. Requiring assessment over a period of time, diagnosis cannot be made even by the most experienced clinicians from a bedside assessment. So I, I, I say I can't dilate on this aspect of Shivo just to say that, um, that the medical certainties expressed during this hotly contested uh, event were expressed with greater certainty than, than, than was warranted. Well, let me now briefly rehearse the conflicting testimony of Michael Scheibo and uh, his witnesses versus the Schindler family and their witnesses. According to Michael Scheibo, he and Terry, along with his brother and his brother's wife, had watched a television program featuring a patient maintained on a ventilator. All three testified that Terry's reaction to the program was to the effect that she would not want her own life preserved in such a manner. Contradictory testimony from two of Terry's lifelong friends was to the effect that Terry had clearly affirmed her commitment to life in the matter of Karen Quinlan. It is notable that the position attributed to Terry by her friends and her parents was based on specific and principled grounds, whereas the contradictory alleged utterances 
were rather more vague. If, however, she ever expressed such a wish, and if her utterances were taken to be on a par with advanced directives or living wills, we are in a position to turn directly to the status that should be accorded such statements. I wish to argue this afternoon that neither autonomy nor sincerity by itself or in combination will relieve the law of its proper burdens in matters of this kind. The two main components I must consider in this connection are, first, the nature of the privacy right itself understood to ground the authority of the wishes of an actual or prospective patient, and second, the competence presupposed if such wishes are to be taken as informed in all of the relevant respects of an informed consent. Distinct from these two issues, but necessary if both privacy rights and the presumption of competence are to receive proper weight, is an evidentiary question regarding the validity and authenticity of the avowal. Put simply, what should courts require as proof of the wishes of the party at issue? I'll turn to this toward the end of my, my address today. But for now, what about privacy, and how does it relate to the liberty interests of the individual citizen? The issue of privacy within the ambit of constitutional protections remains contested and confused. Giving the opinion in Griswold, Justice Douglas recited the now famous assertion that, quote, specific guarantees in the Bill of Rights have penumbras formed by emanations from those guarantees that help give them life and substance, close quote. The wording here has been the source of both mirth and solemnity, owing to the metaphorical work that has to be accomplished by such penumbra-forming emanations. A penumbra, after all, is the shadow of one heavenly body projected onto the surface of another body that is partly occluded by the sun. Now, emanations from such optical effects seem to many to be less than, shall we say, transparently related to unexpressed but implicit constitutional protections. Metaphor aside, it is germane to note here that privacy from a moral point of view is really a neutral term. That is, it refers neutrally to those venues and those conditions of association under which actions take place. It is never sufficient, therefore, in morals or at law, to establish that an activity was done in private. The same, indeed, is so with autonomy. Autonomy refers to the presumed power or capacity of persons to do their own bidding, to frame freely a course of action, and to act accordingly. What one does with one's autonomy is that for which one is properly held accountable and responsible. Thus, no action is automatically justified by autonomy, nor is it automatically justified by being performed in a private setting. Law and morals both reach the quality of the act itself before making any judgment as to whether the venue or the degree of association or the degree of autonomy then should be weighed. 
The importance assigned to considerations of privacy was highlighted by Griswold, but in this the court reasoned gratuitously, and if I may say so, rather clumsily. It's obvious on its face that a constitutional order establishing a people as self-governing is of such a nature as to impose justificatory burdens on the state whenever the state presumes to constrain the liberty of citizens. The word privacy is, is misleading in this regard, for it seems to insulate only the actions that the state doesn't see. Actually, the immunity is far broader and extends to most of what persons will do in the light of day, not hidden by penumbras, but illuminated directly. The point, of course, is that no special set of emanations had to be found in Griswold. In any case, the pedigree of privacy is far more venerable than Griswold. If the sense of the word is drawn from constitutional considerations, one of the most influential early treatises was surely Thomas Cooley's Treatise on the Law of Torts, in which the author underscores what he calls, and what would later become a rather famous phrase, the right to be let alone. Indeed, Cooley was thinking of the insulation citizens should enjoy from intrusive and coercive measures, but consider how he would have the right to be let alone understood. A quote, the right to one's person may be said to be a right of complete immunity, to be let alone. The corresponding duty is not to inflict an injury and not within such proximity as might render it successful to attempt the infliction of an injury. Close quote. Properly understood, then, the right to be let alone is the right that bars attempts to harm. Whatever might be taken to be the motivation behind the relevant Connecticut statutes in Griswold, it surely was not to harm either Dr. Griswold or the married couple who sought her assistance. You know the Griswold thing had to do with, with making available advice and contraceptive devices for the purpose of preventing pregnancy, and Griswold in this case was, uh, was actually uh, uh, a, a consulting competent physician. The action then was brought by Connecticut against, uh, against Griswold. Now, Cooley's right to be let alone was incorporated later into an essay of great authority published a decade later, the essay titled The Right to Privacy by Charles Warren and Louis Brandeis. Warren and Brandeis developed the principle or theory of emanations not only from express provisions of the Constitution, but from far older common law precepts. However, for there to be emanations, there must be a source which is itself not an emanation. Warren and Brandeis make this clear at the very outset of their essay. I quote, that the individual shall have full protection in person and in property is a principle as old as the common law, but it has been found necessary from time to time to define anew the exact nature and extent of such protection. Political, social, and economic changes entail the recognition of new rights, and the common law in its eternal youth grows to meet the demands of society. Here's that organic constitution about which we've heard so much in recent years, this wonderfully 
elastic document, as I said to a friend yesterday. It's elastic, but not liquid. But you, you can see that Warren and Brandeis are, 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 are acknowledging that as a society grows in complexity, as the, as the civic sense of oneself becomes ever more robust, basic common law precepts must be expanded and enlarged to meet these conditions. I continue with their essay. Thus, in very early times, the law gave a remedy only for physical interference with life and property. Then, their phrase, by the way, not the James Madison phrase, in case you think Robert George has invented all this stuff. Then, the right to life served only to protect the subject from battery. Liberty meant freedom from actual restraint and the right to property secured to the individual, his lands, and his cattle. Gradually, the scope of these legal rights broadened, and now the right to life has come to mean the right to enjoy life, the right to be let alone, close quote. In Cooley's right to be let alone, and later in the Warren Brandeis right of privacy, the legal anchor is tethered firmly to the life right, absent which privacy considerations would be jejune. There would be later developments, of course, between the Warren Brandeis analysis of 1890 and then the landmark decision 15 years later, the 1905 Lochner versus New York. By the time of Lochner, the court was persuaded that the state of New York could not intrude itself into the working agreements between bakers and their employers. Lochner, you know, was a case contested on how many hours bakers could, could agree to work. Uh, New York intervened and invoked some sort of health consideration for, for barring these agreements, agreements of this sort. Uh, the baker who was willing to work a 60-hour week was not to be prevented from doing so by an overreaching government by way of arguably and only arguably compelling health laws. The worrisomely protean 14th Amendment now worked to protect the liberty interests of, 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 of persons because the court found against New York and for the bakers. However, the dissenting opinion, and I, I don't find myself often citing Oliver Wendell Holmes in, in a particularly favorable light. He's an inestimable person. More on that at some later date. But, but Holmes, in the dissenting opinion in Lochner, serves up a quintessentially Holmesian paragraph, and, uh, and I think on this very much on the point. He offers a different perspective than the one that uh, would make, and one that would make firmer contact with the future than was available to his colleagues on the bench. Here's Holmes in Lochner. It is settled by various decisions of this court that the state constitutions and state laws may regulate life in many ways, which we as legislators might think as injudicious, if you like, tyrannical. The liberty of the citizen to do as he likes, so long as he does not interfere with the liberty of others to do the same thing, which has been a shibboleth for some well-known writers, is interfered with by school laws, by the post office, by every state or municipal institution which takes his money for purposes thought desirable, whether he likes it or not. And here, I think, is a key sentence. I wish I wrote this. 
the 14th Amendment does not enact Mr. Herbert Spencer's social statics, close quote. The, the spectacle of everyone for himself out there in the jungle of the world, only the, only the best surviving it and doing so by dint of their vaunted individuality, the Spencerian view, Holmes thought, was not the purpose of the 14th Amendment and the amendment shouldn't be used that way. Spencer, you know, was the one who coined the survival of the fittest uh, slogan. Clearly, the constitutional status of privacy uh, does remain unsettled, as must be the case. It's something of a distraction to think this status depends on the outcome of debates between so-called originalists and those who take the Constitution to be rather more elastic and adaptable. That debate can be traced to the earliest cases addressed by the court. With the appearance of the 14th Amendment, the scope of the debate was widened, and on the matter of privacy, the court has since that time been required to wrestle with it in varied assortments and contexts. But quite apart from the constitutional pedigree of the right are questions as to the quality of the actions uh, covered by it. Surely the case closest to Shivo is Cruzan, which was decided by the court in 1990. And I think it's useful to consider Cruzan in some, in some detail here, if, if you'll be patient. Well, to begin with the most direct question, it may be asked if a person's liberty interests are such as to protect self-destructive actions. Now, in his concurring opinion in Cruzan, Justice Scalia uh, made clear that, quote, American law has always accorded the state the power to prevent, by force if necessary, suicide, including suicide by refusing to take appropriate measures necessary to preserve one's life. That the point at which life becomes worthless and the point at which the means necessary to preserve it become extraordinary or inappropriate are neither set forth in the Constitution nor known to the nine justices of this court any better than they are known to nine people picked at random from the Kansas City telephone directory. Cruzan was a case that began in, in, in Missouri. Uh, and hence, that even when it is demonstrated by clear and convincing evidence that a patient no longer wishes certain measures to be taken to preserve her life, it is up to the citizens of Missouri to decide through their elected representatives whether that wish will be honored. And, of course, what he's saying is whether that wish will be honored at law. Now, Justice Scalia might have gone further and noted that the common law precepts fully embraced at the American founding required the protection of life during gestation. It's sometimes said in, in, in Roe v. Wade uh, uh, contexts that, well, what could, the, what could the founders have known about this? They obviously weren't thinking about uh, fetuses. Their medical knowledge was uh, not particularly developed. It wasn't what they were doing in the hot months in Philadelphia and all that stuff. Well, after the ratification of the Constitution, uh, James Wilson, Professor Gordon Graham, a friend of mine who is now here as loose professor, an Aberdonian with the best of Scottish credentials, will understand that James Wilson, native Scot, 
got that good education at Edinburgh before coming over here and making trouble for us, as now you might. Well, James Wilson, whose contributions to the founding were exceeded, uh, well, perhaps surely by Madison, but I'm not sure by anyone else in that room at that time. He's also uh, one of the, uh, he was Associate Justice of the first Supreme Court appointed by President Washington. He was also the one who wrote an extraordinary opinion in the first jurisdictional dispute settled by that court, uh, Chisholm versus Georgia in 1793, in, in which uh, um, his attack on Georgia's claimed sovereignty was so considerable that it led almost mechanically to the 11th Amendment, but that, that's a chapter for, for, for another time. Um, well, Wilson was chosen to, to give a series of lectures on law. They were later published by his son. In the 12th of his lectures, titled The Natural Rights of Individuals, Wilson first distinguishes between rights that come about by way of political establishments and those that exist, he says, quote, by the immediate gift or by the unerring law of our all-wise and all-beneficent creator, close quote. Founders could speak that way then. <laughs> they could speak. Considering next the most fundamental right, that of life itself, Wilson goes on to say that, quote, with consistency beautiful and undeviating. Human life from its commencement to its close is protected by the common law. In the contemplation of law, life begins when the infant is first able to stir in the womb, the quickening criterion. By the law, life is protected not only from immediate destruction, but from every degree of actual violence, and in some cases, from every degree of danger." Close quote. Now, whether understood in terms of common law or more specifically in the logic of the Constitution, the principle is the same. Namely, it is never sufficient at law to establish no more than the wishes of a private citizen to perform an action or to be its recipient, where life itself hangs in the balance. Granting the sincerity of the wishes, there arise further and determinative questions as to whether the action is lawful competently chosen, uncoerced, consistent with relevant state interests, etc. Granting further that there may even be emanations judged in Griswold to be radiating out to form penumbras, and granting still further that privacy is one of these, it remains conjectural as to whether every and any action performed in private enjoys some protection under the 14th Amendment merely because the action is privately taken. At issue in Cruzan was the balance to be struck between the right to refuse treatment and that recognized and fundamental state interest in the protection of life, even when the source of the threat is the potential victim herself. Delivering the opinion of the court, Justice Rehnquist did acknowledge that, quote, the United States Constitution would grant a competent person a constitutionally protected right to refuse life-saving hydration and nutrition, close quote. But there are several other key passages in, in Rehnquist's uh, uh, writing for the court that bring into sharp focus the competing claims of the state to wit, and I carry on with Rehnquist. 
Missouri relies on its interest in the protection and preservation of human life, and there can be no gainsaying this interest. We do not think a state is required to remain neutral in the face of an informed and voluntary decision by a physically able adult to starve to death. But a state has more particular interests at stake. The choice between life and death is a deeply personal decision of obvious and overwhelming finality. We believe Missouri may legitimately seek to safeguard the personal element of this choice through the imposition of heightened evidentiary requirements. And even where family members are present, a state is entitled to guard against potential abuses. In our view, Missouri has permissibly sought to advance these interests through the adoption of a clear and convincing standard of proof to govern such proceedings. And those who kept up with Shivo do understand that the very contentions regarding what her actual wishes were raised questions about the evidentiary standing of, of what was said on either side. Well, it's easy to lose sight of the foundational nature of the state's interest and thus to fail to comprehend the sense in which the so-called compact or the contractarian theory of governance might be defended. Uh, each person surrenders to the collected will of the governed any number of liberties understood to be available in some abstract state of nature uh, in return for which the protection of life and property is taken to be the predominant interest of the collective. Uh, I died in the 4th century BC. I think things probably peaked with the Constitution of Athens. I'm not defending these Lockean notions. I'm, I'm simply rehearsing them because they, they played very well here, by the way, late in the 18th century. Um, um, it's in the nature of the implicit agreement that the individual is no longer entitled to some separate set of arrangements with the state predicated on eccentricities of taste or passion. Now, in this light, it's instructive to consult again Justice Scalia's concurring opinion in Cruzan on another central point in Schiavo and, and, and Terry Schindler Schiavo's uh, alleged wishes. Scalia notes that laws prohibiting suicide are indifferent to distinctions between action and inaction once the outcome is reasonably certain. Nor is the burden of the offense mitigated by evidence of permanent incapacities. Nor is common law thwarted by the claim that, quote, preventing her from effectuating her presumed wish to die requires violation of her bodily integrity. I carry on with Scalia. None of these suffices. Suicide was not excused, even when committed, quote, and here he's going to take a passage from Blackburn versus State, uh, an, 1873, an 1873 case. He says, he says, suicide was not excused even when committed, quote, to avoid those ills which persons had not the fortitude to endure. Nay, even the lives of criminals condemned to death are under the protection of the law, equally as the lives of those who are in the full tide of life's enjoyment and anxious to continue to live. Close quote, close quote. As for the distinction between action and inaction, Scalia states that, quote, it would not make much sense to say that one may not kill oneself by walking into the sea, but may sit on the beach until submerged by the incoming tide. 
Starving oneself to death is no different from putting a gun to one's temple as far as the common law definition of suicide is concerned, close quote. Scalia's position has, of course, not become ensconced in constitutional law. Perhaps uh, it wouldn't enjoy a majority even with the recent additions to the court. But it does rehearse fundamental precepts of common law in ways that surely have informed the laws of the separate states, of our separate states. More to the point, his opinion in Cruzan exposes the weakest points of the privacy privilege when conflicts arise between the state's compelling interest in the protection of life and the rights that might be claimed by an individual citizen. Note also that where the state's interest is greatest, so too is the evidentiary burden on those who would, in, who, who would invoke a liberty interest against it. This was made abundantly clear by Justice Rehnquist in the passages that I cited above. It's precisely because both the state interest and the liberty interest are at their greatest level of significance here that every attempt must be made to establish just what are a patient's free and informed desires. When we apply these considerations to Shivo, the following conclusions seem to me anyway to be warranted. First, that such privacy rights as might be implicit in the Constitution are not without limitation. Second, that the latitude given to the expression of such rights is moderated by other rights and by legitimate state interests. Third, that the state's compelling interest in the protection of life, if nullified at all, can be nullified only by clear and convincing evidence of the uncoerced wishes of a competent and informed citizen, which is to say, by the autonomous decisions of the party at risk. Ah, autonomy. Needless to say, this remains at the center of moral philosophy and its historic disputants. I saw a wonderful cartoon a week and a half ago of the angels. The angels are talking to God. And the angels say, and they've now all come to believe they have free will, as you said they would. So. <laughs> Autonomy is a term on which rest the competing claims of determinists, voluntarists, compatibilists. If you have trouble sleeping, read my praise and blame. There's a very extended review, critical review of all that stuff and more footnotes than you'd ever want to see. Three or four pages, you'll be out like a light. <laughs> I wrote it. I have a vested interest in it. It takes about eight or nine pages for me. But uh... <laughs> A right of privacy is distinguishable from the faculty or power of autonomy, nor is it the case that any and every denial of a privacy right must be at the expense of autonomy. So there's a relationship, but it's certainly not a mutual entailment in any logical sense, let alone in any causal sense. Well, if it were causally entailed, it wouldn't be autonomy. Uh, ah, that's another subject. Um, one is not permitted to inhale cocaine in the privacy of one's residence, but most persons autonomously would uh, forego the pleasure in any case and would even if the law permitted it. This, of course, was uh, the sort of distinction Locke attempted to clarify by noting the difference between what one is at liberty to do and what one does freely. 
It's in chapter 4, section 22 of the second treatise that he contrasts, quote, the natural liberty and, quote, the liberty of man in society, where the latter is, these are Locke's words, under no other legislative power but that established by consent in the commonwealth, nor under the dominion of any will or restraint of any law, but what that legislative shall enact according to the trust put in it. Freedom, then, is to have a standing rule to live by, common to every one of that society, and made by the legislative power erected in it, a liberty to follow my own will in all things where the rule prescribes not, and not to be subject to the inconstant, uncertain, unknown, arbitrary will of another. Dr. John Locke, Dr. Notterman, very good physician, spotted a cyst. He diagnosed correctly a cyst um, on the liver um, of Shaftesbury, his very good friend, and actually presided over an extremely delicate operation that saved Shaftesbury's life. Shaftesbury, as uh, head of the Board of Trade for the Carolinas, actually recommended that Locke help the Carolinas draft their constitution. So he picked a good doctor, and uh, if we're getting it right, he picked a fairly good political scientist as well. Newton's job. Where are they now? I'm sure they're all here in Princeton. I can't wait to meet them. It'll be after today's talk. They're right outside, I know. Well, understood in Locke's terms, one is free to the extent that one has a standing rule to live by common to everyone in that society. Now, nothing in this tells for or against specific laws that might limit freedom um, as long as the limitation were in a manner common to all. Law in its very etymology binds, legara, and enforces conformity to a rule. To some extent, it might be said that members of society autonomously enter into the implicit contract or covenant and exercise their autonomy by accepting uh, the binding constraints of law. I, I'm not about to, to define law. Uh, I, the little etymology is just, is just that. Aristotle tried to define it at the close of his controversial treatise on politics. It's the one all of us who teach Aristotle have to apologize for. This is where he makes the gender comparisons and the Dulos Fusicos, the slave by nature and so forth. But, but at the end, he, he asks uh, what the source of law is. He says a lot of people think we get it straight away from the gods. Dio pera nuorexios nusonamos estin, he says. The law is reason without passion. Anuorexios. He wants the law to be anorexic, you say, in, in the sense of orexios. Um, whether or not the law should respect or oppose the wishes of a citizen or the wishes of a guardian of a citizen is not to be settled by rather wave of the hand references to autonomy. In matters such as Shibo, it is the exercise of autonomy and the permissible reach of liberty interests that in fact are at issue. The questions aroused by such cases must be dealt with and not begged by simply noting again that uh, that uh, the decision was, uh, was autonomous, made autonomously. 
Accepting for juridical purposes that the presumption of autonomy under some circumstances is warranted, the circumstances then remain to be identified. The free action taken by one who is intoxicated is an action understood to be not free in the fullest moral sense. The free actions of a child who might put her name to a lease or the purchase of a car are understood to be not free uh, either in the moral or the legal sense. If then one acknowledges some zone of privacy as regards accepting treatment, where both legal and moral concerns center on the right of a person to self-determination, there will still be the question of whether this person, under these conditions, has made the determination freely, as this very freedom implies competence. Now, on this point, I must express serious reservations about advanced directives, living wills, uh, related testaments. Some of you may have these things. I state for the public, you are my witnesses, I do not have an advanced directive, I do not have a living will, and anyone who might claim that I have either of these things is a rank liar. Um, if I'm found gasping and sputtering and turning purple, I want decisions as to what to do to me reserved to the doctor who might be looking there saying that mass of flesh, but damn it, I'm going to save it anyhow. That's the way I want to go. Did you record that? Do you have that? Mark that down. Gordon, mark it down. I want, that would be the case in, that'd be the case in Aberdeen in any case, wouldn't it? Be some young intern saying, God, he's fat. We won't let him go. So, even if we accept the truth and the accuracy of Michael Schiavo's testimony, the question has to be raised as to whether Terry Schiavo was competent in stating the wishes that uh, he, he attributed to her. If experts in clinical neurology are scarcely unanimous or precise in establishing just what is entailed by the term persistent vegetative state, it's not to be expected that an ordinary citizen would have anything but a very vague sense of its meaning and its significance. To say, if I'm ever in such and such a state, dot, 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 really may ask too much of one's auditors and may claim too much knowledge for oneself. In brief, it is always in order to be wary of advanced directives, living wills, and non-contextual affirmations. There's a literature on this, by the way, and it's an interesting literature, a literature based on what people say in their advanced directives and living wills. If I'm ever, then I don't want any of this. And you know what happens when they're actually laying there and turning purple? And the doctor says, well, I do have this uh, uh, mamiocum uh, stuff. Give it to me, you say. If I'm ever in such a state, easily said. How many times have you said, well, if I were there, you know what I would have said to him? And then you're there and you sort of thing. Um, Might the courts and the citizenry be more deeply informed by the growing community of experts in medical ethics, bioethics? Be careful of what you hyphenate. If there is a good argument to the effect that one must not take Jack's liver, then it's going to be akin to the argument according to which you shouldn't take his car or his house 
And it's not entirely clear that some new set of ethical precepts is engaged every time the scientific community develops a new low-noise amplifier, if you get my point, you see. Bioethics, an amicus brief, was filed by 55 of the leading bioethicists in the United States, major figures. I didn't know any of these names, but I'm sure that they were major figures. Well, with respect to this part of the story, doubt sinks rapidly toward the level of derision. It was at once alarming and perplexing to observe the consistency with which members of the bioethics community were of nearly one mind in their support of the courts and of Michael Scheibo's rightful authority as a guardian. That there would be such uniform approval of measures designed to cause death by starvation and dehydration was the fulfillment of prophecies emanating from bioethics centers years earlier. Daniel Callahan, director of the prestigious Hastings Center, observed as early as 1983, I believe I gave lectures there in 1983, so much for the staying power of one's rhetorical uh, achievements, do you see? So while I'm lecturing there, Callahan must have been up in his room writing this one. Quote, Denial of nutrition may in the long run become the only effective way to make certain that a large number of biologically tenacious patients actually die. <laughs> Remind me, not, I'm not going to have Dan Callahan to certain functions. He goes on. Given the increasingly large pool of superannuated, chronically ill, physically marginal elderly, I'm going to be 69 years old tomorrow. I don't like this kind of talk. <laughs> it could well become the non-treatment of choice. <laughs> oh, damn. Um, Note the main objective, cited here without any evidence of regret, let alone horror. The main objective is to unburden the system of tenacious patients by starving them to death. I mean, this is sort of a double win, isn't it? You save on the food bill and you get rid of the... Uh, um. Well, next came the group of, quote, 55 of the nation's leading bioethicists, close quote who did file an amicus brief in support of Michael Schiavo's action in Florida's Supreme Court, where Schiavo attempted to block Governor Bush's intervention. The amicus brief begins with a statement of what they call the four central values that arise from the moral traditions of medicine and nursing and from the ethical, religious, and legal traditions of our society. Well, that's quite a bit of authority to pack in there with just... Um, now, what's the source of all this? Why the Hastings Center guidelines on the termination of life-sustaining treatment and the care of the dying? H.L. Mencken once defined a judge as a law student who grades his own examination papers. Well, um, so, so, uh, so the, what are the four central values? One, beneficence. I think I'm going to cry. <laughs> Two, the integrity of healthcare professionals. Three, justice. 
Four, personal autonomy. Well, of course, from a moral point of view, none of these can stand as a central value until their modes of expression and resulting effects are specified. Consider the amplification of the value of autonomy. They say this about it, quote, we respect human dignity by granting individuals the freedom to make choices in accordance with their own values, close quote. Of course, it's patently false that respect for human dignity requires the undeliberated and unevaluated permission to act in accordance with one's own values. We'd have to know what the values are. Jeffrey Dahmer's uh, dietary preferences uh, might, might actually have been grounded in a certain deeply held sincere religious conviction. Not good enough. No, sorry about that. That, that. that you're sincere about this only makes matters worse. The law itself, not to mention moral philosophy, takes cognizance of just those values in seeking to judge their worth and such respect as they might deserve. So too with the integrity of healthcare professionals who, according to the amicus brief, quote, have a right to remain true to their own conscientious moral and religious beliefs, close quote. Now, moral and religious beliefs can be conscientious, but entirely unacceptable within a setting established to foster health and well-being. The Santeria expressed their religious conscientiousness by bloody sacrificial rites performed on animals. Now, surely members of the sect who just happened to be nurses or doctors, could not plausibly claim the right to include Afro-Caribbean magic as part of a therapeutic regimen covered by Blue Cross, or at least not yet. The alleged right to remain true to one's moral or religious beliefs is, as with all other rights, bounded by considerations of time and place, statutory constraints, public safety, public de decency. The list is really very long. Failure to address these boundaries directly reduces the bioethicists' core values to pieties, just um, platitudes. Well, they're not platitudes. Well, as might be expected, the amicus brief rises to its greatest rhetorical height on the wings of personal autonomy. For, quote, no legal right is more important in American society. Now, how on earth could they know that, do you see? This is a category mistake. There, there are just a lot of people living here. There isn't an American society over and against Jack and Jill. And no legal right is more important in American society than the right of personal autonomy, each person's fundamental right to the sole control of his or her person, close quote. The fragment quoted within this passage that I, I've just given you is not from the Constitution of the United States or the Bill of Rights. It's not from the Federalist. Uh, uh, it's from a Florida guardianship case. That's where that quote comes from. It's In Re Guardianship of Browning, 568, Florida, 1990. Um, 
He should have been in some insurance case in, in New Jersey, maybe with a bicycle run over by a truck. Or and when we start talking about the core values of American society, it should be a trite case, not a serious one. Uh, as with so much of the impressionistic reasoning now featured in judicial proceedings, this passage, too, might have been better placed in an ethics primer uh, and uh, where it would give dangerous solace to the uncritical reader. One's next-door neighbor, if not a specialist in bioethics, and if queried on the subject, would surely be less than certain that there is no legal right more important than autonomy. One's neighbor would presumably place the highest premium on being secure in his life and property and in the lives of those closest to him. The basic rights set forth by Madison in the first ten amendments to the U.S. Constitution do not mention and arguably do not even envisage autonomy as a right. It is instead a power. It's a capacity, the use of which renders one fit for the judgments of law. In all, then, the 55 of our nation's leading authorities in bioethics shed no light and much fog over the issues in Shivo. I am not being unfair to them here. Read the brief. It's very poorly done. It, it would be poorly done as a minor's thesis in philosophy by a student who had six credits in moral philosophy. Well, no, six credits in, in ethics, three of them in bioethics would write something like that. It was a terrible performance. Incredibly self-conscious, pompous, uh, and stupid uh, work. Um, it's the sort of thing where if you have to sign it, you make up a name for yourself. <laughs> In the heated environment of Senate confirmation hearings, candidates for appointment to the federal courts are often asked the question, do you believe privacy to be a constitutionally protected right? How often did we hear that during these Supreme Court? Do you believe, uh, this is a very rude way to put a question. The way you put the question is, I wonder if you might comment on the notion of a privacy right. Um, do you believe privacy to be a constitutionally protected right? It's permissible to judge a question of this sort as little more than an appeal to a constituency, for as stated, the question is too simplistic for a serious person to answer. It has no content, either with respect to the putative right or to the range of actions that would be protected by it, just in case it's a right. Content could be supplied in this form. Do you believe that starving a child to death in private is constitutionally protected? <laughs> Again, just what actions and under what conditions are at once private and then constitutionally protected owing to a respect for privacy point to the central part of a long debate on where one's individual liberties confronting lawful limits, uh, which is going to bend, which one hopes will not break. Uh, that's the tension. We, we live with this seven days a week. It's an ineliminable aspect of civic life. It's like mowing your lawn, you know, at a lower end of things. It's the things you have to yield to so that others also might have some robust, decent, uh, uh, and joyful moments in their own lives. Uh, 
even rock and roll music, do you see? I, it's, it's all right. Can't spend all your time with Schubert. Um, Terry Schiavo entered a twilight time in life, and she remained there for many years. The parents who so loved her and continued to see the little girl they knew, the young woman, the eager bride, the worried wife, well, less clear is perhaps what Michael Schiavo came to see, both before the tra tragic event and then in the years that followed. Cases such as this are the stuff of drama. And as with all tragic forms of drama, they are lessons, they provide warnings, they send up signals, they alert us to things we might have been complacent about. Cases like this will lead some toward pastoral guidance, others to lawyers and the composition of wills, others to the security that might be felt among like-minded friends and neighbors. Well, as all this proceeds and gives yet another and deeper dimension to life, there does remain the fact, and here I refer to the legal, the moral, and the civic fact, of what the Florida Constitution itself calls a natural person, now holding on to a life that can claim little more than a past and an empty future. Here is a natural person whose condition allows us to see just where we set the bar on the value of life. As the bar is raised above the place where Terry Schiavo is, was sustained, society must address its collective moral conscience and ask candidly whether this is a victory for the right of privacy or a concession to what Daniel Callahan calmly predicted more than 20 years ago when, as I've noted, he observed that denial of nutrition may in the long run become the only effective way to make certain that a large number of biologically tenacious patients actually die. Thank you very much. Thank you, Professor Robinson. We have uh, time for questions. Uh, may I ask, uh, first of all, for student questions? Yes, I, I have that effect very often. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Now, now you were taunted into doing it. It seems to me that one of the most compelling facets of the argument is that it is the states and their, and their moral deliberations and the legislature to decide how and under what circumstances decisions as to the rights or decisions as to the end of life treatment uh, or, or not end of life treatment of persons such as Mr. Jairo uh, are to be left to the state legislature. Um, in as those states have made a decision that life should be protected, all seems fine. What if the states were to make decisions somewhat in line with what uh, Professor Singer said here uh, and, and end up actually terminating a lot of lives and are judged to be in the least interest of society from a well, no, it's a, it's a profoundly important question. I should say that uh, one of my, my Oxford colleagues, uh, John Broom, um, uh, who holds the, the White's chair in moral philosophy, which is the, it's the oldest philosophy chair in Europe, uh, John's an economist. And John's work over a course of many years has been devoted to the question, what is the value of life? 
and, and he means this as a trained, serious economist would raise questions about value. It means, given the resources you have available, what fraction of the overall resources are you ready to deploy for the sake of preserving that life? For how long, under what circumstances, and so forth. You know, because you've addressed the subject as a student, as a young scholar, that I'm not going to answer that question here. I am going to say, uh, however, that, that um, much of the Bill of Rights is actually at the expense of, of what I would call a consistent uh, consequentialist moral theory, um, a consistent uh, utilitarian theory, given what it sets out to maximize, certainly would not accord to the individual the range of protections uh, uh, the, the liberty interests over and against those of very sizable majorities that, that would play out on, on uh, uh, you mentioned Peter Singer, I would guess on, on Peter Singer's scheme. Um, my own position on this should be of very, very little interest, I, but I, I'm quite good at telling you what a lot of other people have thought over a long period of time. Um, The ancient world was not uh, solicitous of, um, of the values of, of the individual insofar as they were individuated. There, there was a remarkable development in, in, in ancient Greek law. Um, we're told initiated by Solon himself because prior to Solon's reforms, the prevailing scheme of justice was fratric justice, which is to say if a member of my fratry or tribe uh, suffered a, a loss, an injury, as a result of something done by a member of yours, it was not necessary to find out who in your tribe did it. It would be sufficient to retaliate against anyone in that tribe, just in case you didn't produce the offender. Solon's reforms uh, pin responsibility on, on the actor. One might say that this is a very early recognition in law uh, of, of um, individual responsibility. But, um, well, no, if we, if we go with uh, some sort of uh, utilitarian scheme, legislators surely are going to recognize that what it takes... Here's the bottom line. From a physiological point of view, I don't know any living system that, in principle, can't be kept going, or some piece of it going, lots of pieces of it going. And it depends on how much you're willing to invest in this. Now, sometimes the decisions at law have and are intended to have um, a rhetorical value to them. That is, even where practically the law cannot achieve its aim. In stating its aim, it encourages a form of conduct judged to be desired. Hence Hegel's phrase, what the law permits, it encourages. And I would say then that legislators who say, um, you're going to be in deep yogurt if you're willy-nilly about ending a life. Look at me now, I'm using an audiovisual aid. <laughs> and, and, then, and then have competent medical people who did not get all that schooling in order to develop sophisticated ways of killing, 
then allow, uh, in, in, in a chapter that I've done on Shiva, which Cambridge is publishing next year, I do have some recommendations. One recommendation is that in cases of this kind, where there are disputants of comparable standing, the disputant who favors the preservation of life gets the nod. That is, where the evidentiary requirement can't be fully met by either side, the nod goes to the side that says, keep the machinery going. When in doubt, primum non nocera, or after Holy Mother Church, no chanda. The only way I can read an Italian newspaper is assume it's bad Latin. Um, <laughs> Thank God. Hawking is something like that, isn't he? By the way, I, 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 I really don't want to be any more tedious than I have been because there, there are some intricate details uh, about this, this case. Um, l let me just say this much. Uh, the, the friends of the deceased who claim that uh, during the Quinlan period uh, she, she, was, she opposed the decision of the family to terminate the life support systems. Uh, judge Greer, who was the probate judge who, who uh, settled this, um, uh, and this is uh, how it's done in Florida, uh, he discounted their testimony because they referred to something that Terry Schiavo said, um, I wish I had my full chapter here, something she said in 1985, and he said this, this couldn't have been the case um, because... Uh, uh, Quinlan was settled in 1973. Now, the briefs and oral arguments before the Supreme Court of New Jersey in the matter of Karen Quinlan are published in two volumes. They came out after the Supreme Court uh, decided it in New Jersey, and, and I wrote the introduction to those, to those volumes. Uh, it's quite up on uh, every aspect of, of Quinlan. Uh, I'm the one who said if they take the, uh, the, the tube out and she resumes breathing, she could last for 10 years, and of course everybody would go, ha-ha. Don't go ha-ha. 
Um, and she did last for 10 years because when they moved her to a new facility, they had to take the trach tube out, and she started breathing again. Well, um, Terry made this comment after uh, a movie on Quinlan was seen on television. So, so, so th there wasn't any disparity in, in the dates. And when hit with that, he did not think that was sufficient to reconsider the... There were tr tr tremendous problems with this. And um, I, I want to stay away from those because at the level of principle, you don't, you don't want it settled by some probate judge being in a persistent, uh, uh, incompetent uh, state. Um, as, as far as what people say they don't want done to them, and I think it's very important for you to know this, just in case you've written an advance directive, the likelihood that when you're wheeled into an emergency room, anybody in that room will have access to your advance directive or will stop what they're doing to read the thing is very low indeed. And just in case they do read it, just in case they know well in advance of your getting there what your wishes are, research shows that they follow those wishes about a third of the time. Here's the bad news if you're somebody who doesn't want to be like this. Doctors have this persistent habit of saving a life. Becky Notterman can explain where this, uh, where this zeal comes from. But um, chances are, one of New Jersey's distinguished pediatricians, I mean, if some, somebody wrote down something about how they wanted to be treated and they came in in, 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 in terminal stages of, 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 of a condition that otherwise is treatable, I can't imagine seeing Becky Notterman standing there reading this damn thing. And, you know, to, no. So, so... Let the doctors decide. Well, I think in some of these very difficult cases, look, if you're prepared to entrust your life, your well-being, the lives and well-being of your spouses, your children, and so forth, to people you've never met on the basis of what you take to be their commitment to your best interest, then it seems to me that in those final hours, that, that probably should be the, the community of choice. It's a hard case, yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I'm, I, I would be inclined in, in this general area uh, to see to it that, that very hard cases don't quickly make law. See, uh, it, it's possible for 
difficult issues to be settled beyond the range of, of adjudication, litigation, and, and so forth. Now, what made this unavoidable, of course, is you did have two contesting parties. So uh, courts are there, among other reasons, to settle disputes, and there, and there, and there, there wasn't a dispute. Um, but I say I, there, there were all sorts of things in Shivo that, uh, that, that are extremely worrisome, having to do with how her assets were being managed by him, these insurance gains, and the fact that he was uh, fathering children in another relationship while legally married to her, who would be the beneficiary of the insurance. But, but that, that's a case where you can, I mean, you can just paint characters black and white and, and have your way with them. So I'd, I'd rather just stay at, 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 at the level of, uh, of principle. Now, on Dickens, um, um, look, um, there is a progressive refinement of the rule of law just in case those prepared to live under it progressively refine themselves. Law is not some, some entity separated from life as lived. It is indeed, I don't want to sound like an unreconstructed legal positivist here. I don't want to say, well, I certainly don't want to sound like Kelsey. But of course it is something we make. Not, not as we make clay pots, but it is something we devise. And, and what we devise is a, is a reflection of our powers. And our powers are a reflection of how we live our lives and how we think through things and how we shoulder responsibilities. Where the law is an ass, it's presiding over asses who made it that way. You see. And... Um, very often it, 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 it's necessary to, to, to accept the fact, we all do this all the time, that the law is going to bind us in ways that we don't like, often under conditions not of our choosing, and to some extent to the advantage of others that we believe don't deserve that advantage. <coughs> and then we have to step back from particularizing that and ask whether the maxim being affirmed by that legal remedy or that law uh, acting over the long course is going to achieve ends consistent with the moral purposes of a decent people. So, um, you know, I did do that, uh, write that book on wild beasts, wild beasts and idle humors, in which I wanted to argue that um, that the achievements of uh, medical jurisprudence are <laughs> not not what we think they are, and that these insanity cases would best be settled within the. Uh, within the framework of judges, juries, contesting lawyers, and not spend a lot of time on uh, the Diagnostic and Statistics Manual of the American Psychiatric Association. And the book got very good reviews. But, but one of the, um, the review in The Federal Lawyer was, uh, <laughs> and uh, the author's prepared to leave all this up to lawyers. Imagine that. So, so leaving things up to doctors, imagine that. Well. At the end of the day, you've, you've, you've got to leave these things up to somebody. And I would say that uh, where, where life is at issue, you leave the decision up to one who's affirming life. Unless there's overwhelming 
uh, evidence to the, to the contrary. Unarguable, uh, uh, almost unarguable evidence to the contrary. In the back there. Yeah. Uh, um, at the same time as Chicago, there was a Texas case where another one or something kept the body and they didn't want to pay for that. Uh, your, your rule of thumb here, the uh, side favor of losing life, goes again. <coughs> Well, well, as, as I, uh, what's your name? Michael. Yeah, when Michael raised the question about how, how much you're willing to invest in this, I, I, I did own up to the fact that I died in the fourth century BC. But, but if I were revived today and looked at the, the scheme that we live under, well, it, it is in the states, and they'll 